The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Book of Exodus, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And the man answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Lord, we thank you for your word, the story of your grace. Friends, nothing can dampen the mood of a wedding more than ambulance sirens. 
About a month ago, I officiated a wedding at a state park along Lake Michigan's dunes, and it had the potential to be a pristine setting for a wedding. Shaded trees overlooking this turquoise lake, but throw in 35 to 45 mile an hour winds, and the setting changes very quickly. The wind was whipping off the water. The waves were crashing. And just minutes before the bride was to make her way down the aisle, the groom received a text from the bride's father saying, hold off on starting the ceremony. There are three kids caught in the riptide. They're not sure they're going to make it, and the rescue crew is on their way. I announced to the attendees of the wedding the reason for our delay, and all of us sat in our fragile humanity as we heard the sirens make their way into the park. And parents were wondering, what if that were my kid in the water? Children were wondering, what if that were me in the water? And most of us were praying, Lord, do whatever you can to rescue these kids. A wedding and a drowning occurring at the same time. This is Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 1 ends with an insecure Egyptian dictator who can't seem to stop the Hebrews from multiplying like rabbits. These foreigners are multiplying, and he orders the extermination of every male by way of drowning, by throwing them into the Nile. Hebrew mothers are having their baby boys ripped from their arms and tossed off the Mason Street Bridge into the river. Can you imagine that? And Hebrew fathers are drowning in labor as they're working 18-hour shifts under back-breaking conditions with no breaks, little food, and a taskmaster's whip ready to strike at any misstep. There is no place for praying, only groaning and grieving and gasping for whatever air is left in their drowning lungs. It's a whole people caught in a riptide. And during all of these tragic and violent things is the hope of one man's beginning. God's deliverer, God's rescuer, God's lifeguard and life preserver. Behind the cruelty of the king of Egypt's schemes is the hope of a God who's working to redeem. A God who hears, sees, remembers, knows that his people need intervention from the riptide of Pharaoh and the powers of this sinful world. And a God who is already at work and not only hearing the cry of his people from the riptide, but responding to rescue them. Friends, the more that we believe this, that God alone is the one who is able to rescue us, the more likely we're to call upon Him alone for rescue from our riptides. What are we to believe about this God from Exodus 2? Well, first thing we're called to believe, friends, is that the Lord is a life preserver we must cling tightly to. We'll see this in the first 10 verses of this chapter. If you think about it, whenever you go to a pool, you see the life preserver sitting up on the fence probably. What does a life preserver do? It encircles around you, doesn't it? It goes under your arms. That circle goes under your arms and keeps you above the water. It keeps you able to breathe 
from falling under the water. And the Lord sends this life preserver through a son of Jacob, a Levite, it says. He comes from a priestly line, Moses does. The priests were the interceders for the people. And so we have a clue in verse 1 that this boy is going to be someone who's going to step in between a people and their God. And as Pharaoh was hoping to snuff out God's people by getting rid of all of the Hebrew men, look who ironically is at work in keeping the life preserver, this beautiful boy priest, from going under the water of the river. A faithful mother, a clingy sister, and an enemy's daughter. Laugh at the irony. God uses three women to save Moses. The faithful mom the sister, and the enemy's daughter. A faithful mom puts her trust in God to preserve her son. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie A Quiet Place, but she's in an ancient version of the movie The Quiet Place. In that film, the alien enemy is this blind monster who can only zone in to attack a person by hearing the sound of their voice or hearing them make any kind of sound. And for this mother, was anyone to hear her baby cry, it could mean he'd be pulled from her arms and thrown into the river. And for three months, she's managed to keep him as quiet as she can, but she can't keep him hidden any longer. So she's got to do something. And so what does she do? She commits him to the Lord's life-preserving care. Imagine moms and dads having to place your baby in a basket on a river, and just walk away. What do you have to believe to do that? You have to believe in the life-preserving sovereignty of God. And she places her treasured boy in this little mini ark. That's how it's translated. This little ark. What happens? And she puts her faith in a sovereign God. That boy is actually returned back to her with miracle after miracle. That baby basket is found by an enemy and then spared. His sister intervenes. The baby's returned to the mother for more care and more spiritual nurture from mom and dad. And the boy grows up to be a son and an heir. The name is given to him. And the name is Moses which Pharaoh's daughter thinks means in Hebrew, I drew him out of the water. But it actually means he's the one who will draw people out of the water, or he will be the one to draw out of the water. Moses' name literally means life preserver. His first months of life of being delivered from the water would be a testament of what the Lord would do through him to deliver an entire nation out of the water. The mother's faith was able to let go of the baby as he's probably screaming, don't let me go, mom, by holding tightly to God's promise that you will never let any of us go. You will preserve us. You will life preserve us. This week, one of our friends experienced an awful taste of this as her son was injured on the football field. And he was screaming in so much profound pain as his leg was broken in two pieces. 
And she couldn't get his screams out of his head even as she went to sleep that night. She was helpless to do anything except trust and cling to the life-preserving skills of paramedics, nurses, doctors, and ultimately God to care for her screaming son. That's what's going on for this mother, clinging to a God who promises to save. Moses was born under a death sentence from an earthly king, but this mother clung to the promise of life preservation from a much more powerful king, the only one who would be able to guide that basket into the right hands at the right time for the right purposes. Her faith got on that little ark with the boy. Her faith got on that ark with that boy. And where is the Lord asking you to do the same? To faithfully cling to the preserver of life. To give up treading water on your own plan of saving yourself or saving others and let him get under your arms to lift you out. If you're a mom of a struggling or sleepless or separated son, put your faith in the little ark and trust that your worry, your worry can't keep your son afloat. Only God can. Father of a child who you're not sure will end up following in your faith footsteps. Put your faith in that little ark of a God who can. The father sent his son into the depths of the water to draw Moses out. Let's trust him to do the lifting of the ones we care about out of the water, not us. And let's also allow him to lift us up instead of, again, treading water to save ourselves. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, talks about how we often live we refuse life preservers when they come to us. And he talks about the ridiculousness of res- refusing such an offer. He writes, Who could resist the easy yoke of Jesus? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shout back, No way! Not me! This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. How ridiculous would that be? Jesus' life-preserving yoke is easy and his burden is light around you. Call upon him to remind you that he's keeping you above the waters and the waves with every care that comes around you. Because what happens to us then when we allow him to lift us above the waters? We become a people of peace, not a people of panic. We become a people of peace, not a people of performance, of treading water. We become a people of peace, not a people of self-preservation. The Lord is a life preserver we must cling to. Second, the Lord is a lifeguard we must trust. Look at verses 11 to 15 with me. Moses was given nurture and spiritual training from his Hebrew parents to know who he was. He knew he was not an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew. His frame, his body type, his complexion, his face were probably also noticeably different from his Pharaoh Academy family. He's like the only free African boy in a south of the Mason-Dixon line segregated and slavery still legal school. That's who Moses is. He was spared from the whip, from the torment, but he's seeing injustice left and right around him. 
But what does Moses do in this account? He doesn't trust the God of Hebrews to be doing something fast enough. So he puts on the lifeguard gear and takes justice out of God's hands and puts it into his own. He watches a man being beaten, an Egyptian man beating his fellow Hebrew, and he executes this eye-for-an-eye justice by beating the man right back. But before he does, what does he do? He looks to the right and to the left. Some things he's... Some think he's looking for someone to do something. Like, is someone going to act? Is someone going to do something? Some some think he's looking not to get caught cheating the law of God. Will I get caught? Which sets authorities in place to decide if this guilty man should die. I think it's a strong leaning to the second. Because part of Moses' motivation was good. He wanted to defend this defenseless Hebrew. But the manner of murder a rageful murder, is not. He was attempting to achieve salvation for this slave by his own hands and not the hand of God, the only one who could deliver. He cheats God's system. He looks to the right and left to see if anyone will notice that he's cheating. And God always makes cheating matters known, verse 14 reminds us. One author writes, the proof that Moses' way was not the right way was that God sent him into the wilderness for 40 years before giving him another chance to deliver Israel. God wanted to make sure that his people would be saved for God's glory. When salvation finally came, it would not be through the strength of any man, but through the power of God alone. Friends, we have to trust the Lord as a lifeguard, that he's watching and working rather than take matters into our own executioner hands. That question that was asked Moses the next day by two of his own reveals a problem. Who made you man in charge and judge? The guy says. And at this point, God hadn't. Moses was self-appointed, not God-anointed. It's good that Moses feels the pain of his people. That's a good thing. Like Christ, he shares in his Hebrew suffering. And we see Moses as the one God's calling to make things right for his people. You see that in what he does. But at the right time, in the righteous manner, 40 years later, not because he's angry in that moment. An anonymous quote reads, and it's in your worship guide too at the beginning, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. Moses was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And Moses was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. And I want to ask us this question, where are you in the story? Are you trying to make much of yourself? Are you in the first part of Moses' life? Are you in the second part of Moses' life where you're learning, you know what, I really don't have that much? (laughs) Or are you in the last part of the story which says, I'm learning, I want to make much of him. Moses looked around before he acted thinking no one was there. He didn't yet understand that in the midst of the quiet, God was there. God was still the guard of that victim's life. I heard the story recently about a valedictorian at a local school whom everyone in the school, everyone in the school knew, cheated their way through high school and ended up with a full-ride scholarship to college. How do you want to respond to that? 
with justice, right? But are you being appointed and anointed to be the one to respond? Or are you cheating God's authority, even right now in your heart or your head, by executing the kid or executing the teachers or executing the public school system? How might you be cheating God's appointed order of things? Have you ever played any of the games by the makers of Exploding Kittens? They have some wise words about cheating. In the rules it reads, if it feels like cheating, it's cheating. How's that for defining a conscience? Ask yourself the question, where am I intervening, speaking, thinking, behaving as if I am God's appointed judge or commander? Am I or I am? Has the Lord given me this role or am I taking it from Him or taking it from someone He's designated to have it? A reverse application is also to think about where you might not be exercising God's designated authority. Maybe it's in your home as a parent or it's in your work as a supervisor or it's in the church as an elder. Where is God calling you to intervene with justice and mercy and you're apathetic or turning a blind eye? Trust in the Lord to be the one in charge. The Lord's a life preserver we must cling to, a lifeguard we must trust, and finally the Lord is a lifesaver we must taste. Verses 16 to 25. The story pans out and in as Moses takes residence in this land called Midian, which is our modern-day Saudi Arabia. Moses flees for his life because he's chosen to side with the Hebrews. And leading the way, he's made his allegiance with God. He's cut ties with Egypt. And for 40 years, Moses will learn as a shepherd how to lead, how to protect, how to take care of sheep in the middle of a desert wilderness. Friends, these 40 years for Moses, he's being trained how to save a people. And his training is taking how long? 40 years. That's long game, people. (laughs) And God's calling of Moses, he was not only trained how to shepherd, he was trained how to husband, how to father a family whose son's name means stranger in a strange land. And the beginning highlight of Moses' training was taking care to save the life of seven daughters of a priest. Moses wards off these bully shepherds who probably day in and day out were stealing the women's water and taunting them for some action. And Moses' skill in Pharaoh's military is now used to jujitsu the enemies off. And now Moses lives up to his name. He delivers water to these women to drink. He delivers water to their livestock to drink. He's not the source of the water. He's giving the water to them from the giver, from the source. Taste and see, he says to these women. And will eventually say to the whole nation of Israel, the Lord is good. Taste him. You ever tasted spring water? in the wilderness or in dry places or on the Appalachian Trail when you're tired and hungry, thirsty, and you've been in the sun all day. It's one of the most blissful and exhilarating simple pleasures life has to offer. 
Imagine you're out there and there's a six foot six man with an automatic weapon saying, you want something to drink? It's going to cost you. Come here, honey, and pay up. Moses makes these women's life safer and better by providing them protection and giving them water. But Moses had to be prepared to act. He had to be prepared for battle. He had to be prepared to offer protection. He went to a classroom at Pharaoh's court, and he's going to a classroom in the wilderness. Friends, what is the classroom in which the Lord is shaping you into someone he will use to protect or provide water for people who need it? You may be in a job right now that you consider to be dull. You may be living in a city whose winter you can't always tolerate. You may be married to a spouse that you're growing weary of, and you may not be seeing a whole lot of fields of fruit, only sand, 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 and sand. Taste the Lord's water for you in the wilderness. He's forming something in you that Florida, or being a chief financial officer, or being the sexiest man alive, cannot cultivate in you. He's readying you to long for the taste of Christ-giving water. And as I wrap up, we're brought back to the last three verses, to the condition of Israel. And it's a marker of ready, set, save. The wedding and the drowning are happening simultaneously. Forty years of Moses learning Pharaoh's way, forty years of Moses learning the wilderness way, and now the Lord has readied him to respond to the excruciating cries of the children of Israel. Their cries, the scripture says, have reached God, which is a tell that God is ready to act decisively. As the king who wanted Moses dead is now dead, It's time for Moses to return to pull the drowning people from the riptide of slavery. God sees and intimately knows their sufferings, their cries, their how long must we suffer? And he remembers his covenant promises to make them his his own, to bring them home and to bless the world through them. He's ready with a life preserver, a lifeguard, a lifesaver through Moses. And he's only beginning to ready the way further to a life-preserving, life-guarding, life-saving Jesus. Friends, we are called in this story as Christians to cling closely to Jesus as he puts you on the ark of his drowning back and carries you out of the waters of your sin and your death. Trust in Jesus to guard your life And trust in him to guard the life of the rest of his sheep in being the executor of justice and mercy. The death sentence that is required of you and Moses and all the people of God for your crimes and your cheating against God becomes Jesus's to bear. And then he's calling you to taste the life-saving sweet water of the wine and the bread that has protected you from eternal death and brought you back home safely to your family. God sees and knows you need rescuing. Call upon Christ alone to do only what he was prepared and capable to do. Just a flashback to the wedding quickly. As we sat in silence before the processional of the wedding on the water, 
we all wondered what we could do. We were looking out at the waves crashing. We were seeing and hearing the rescue paramedics going. And the Lord prompted me to lean into the microphone and just cry out to him for help. And we prayed, Lord, rescue these three young boys. Have mercy, oh God, on them, on their families, and even on this wedding. Praise God. All three of them were drawn out of the water by a paramedic Moses and saved. May we consistently call and cry out to our rescuer, knowing he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows the way out for each one of us through the preserving power of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your preservation of us. We pray that we would continue to walk and live and call upon your mercy and your help every day of our lives, wherever we are, whether we are trying to make something of ourselves in those 40 years of Moses' life humble us, whether we're trying to recognize and realize that we really are not all that, Lord, humble us. And whether we're trying to see and understand and really grasp the heights of your power, Lord, humble us. Do your work in each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.